Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Today's discussion came from our archives and was recorded in October of 2023. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, a longtime faculty member here at the Henry George School, who is joined by our guest, Dr. Vili Semler. Dr. Semler is the Arnhold Professor of International Cooperation and Development at the New School in New York City, where he researches macroeconomics, the economics of climate change, and financial markets. Dr. Semler is also a fellow at Columbia University's Center on Capitalism and Society, an institute that examines the shortcomings of orthodox economics and looks to understand the economy through a more realistic and complex lens. Vili has also taught at other universities such as the American University in Washington, D.C., the University of Berlin, and the University of Bielefeld in Germany. He is the author of numerous journal articles and has written many books such as Asset Prices, Booms, and Recessions, and Sustainable Macroeconomics, Climate Risks, and Energy Transitions. Dr. Semler is a trustee and longtime member here at the Henry George School as well. He is an expert on all things macroeconomics, sustainability, and business cycles. As you've probably heard me say in other introductions, I'm currently living in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I'm pursuing a master's in international development from Clark University. One thing I've noticed in my program, and generally the department as a whole, is they tend to alienate economics from the discussion and usually mention economics in a negative light. To a lot of the professors here, economics is seen as extractive, consumer-driven, and something that largely overlooks environmental degradation. Maybe I'm biased because I was an economics major and just generally find the subject interesting, but I don't think economics and the environment have to go against one another. I believe there are ways to utilize economics to the benefit of the earth and provide things like clean air and water to everyone. Today's discussion really delves into how economics can be used or rethought to improve environmental conditions. Is economic growth inseparable from environmental damage? Can the economy become less energy intensive as it diversifies? Is it possible to improve living conditions with a growing population without increasing pollution? Economists often examine incentives and how they can lead to different outcomes. Dr. Semler helps us break down those incentives and how they can be recalibrated to benefit conservation efforts. Dr. Semler studied at the University of Munich and Technical University and earned his PhD from the Free University of Berlin. Together, we discussed why many conflate economic growth with pollution, how policy and incentives can better serve environmental needs, and how the financial sector can be rewired to encourage productive investment and reduce speculation. We hope you enjoy this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Professor Semler, welcome to Smart Talk. 
Thank you very much for inviting me and for organizing this talk. It is a pleasure to have this discussion. Great. Uh, well, before we get into the subject of your book, I'm sure that our Smart Talk audience would share my curiosity regarding your personal path that brought you from Europe to join the faculty of the New School in New York City and your chosen area of research, teaching, and writing. Uh, well, um, it was almost accidental <laughs> that really? I ended up here. I had uh, two offers, one from when I had finished my PhD, one at University of uh, Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, and the other one I was waiting for uh, a postdoc position at the U.S., at the Columbia University there and in New York. And um, that depends, depended a little bit what letter came first. And actually, I had the letter from Tanzania already. And then I said, oh, wait a little bit. And then I got the offer here to come with the American Society, uh, American Learned Society, they provided me with a postdoc uh, stipend here at Columbia University, and they choose this path. And then I wrote a book on uh, competition, actually, on uh, history of competition theories and uh, competition and the market at Columbia University. And then I got an offer, offer from American University of um, um, Washington, D.C., went there for a year and then I came to the new school and got an offer there and so I came back to New York. And for me it was a, a movie from New York Washington, uh, New York to Washington uh, is, is uh, very similar to being in, in New York and I work on both sides basically on the US and on Europe in terms of uh, comparing the macroeconomies, the labor markets, the inflation rates, the uh, dynamics of the European and the American economy and fiscal and monetary policies and those things. So I work on both sides, uh, on topics of both sides, so to speak. And that's a great fun uh, to, to be here in New York, to be uh, uh, at the forefront, basically, it's American uh, science of uh, and sciences, in particular economic discussions. And so I learned a lot then here from this side. Let me ask you uh, an interesting question that just occurs to me, and that is, uh, who were your mentors, your intellectual mentors among the uh, leading members of the economics discipline? Who did you look to as as um, people who really inspired you and you felt were were their own research and writing was in the right direction? Well, uh, I actually also had studied before mathematics and philosophy, and I studied with uh, Karl Friedrich von Weizsäcker philosophy, who was uh, mentioned again in the recent uh, movie, uh, he was a physicist who worked with Heisenberg on the development of the nuclear bomb, but he uh, changed to um, a, a philosophy to warn the society never to use this bomb. And he was very important for the peace movement in Germany. So when I studied in Germany, I had uh, 
great sympathy for classical political economy. Uh, Adam Smith, Marx, Descartes, John Stuart Mill, and uh, 19th century, and Marshall, and so also uh, Schwafa uh, theory. So uh, there were uh, a number of colleagues that pursued this, uh, uh, also a, a long Keynesian theory of macroeconomics. So uh, I was later uh, actually uh, very familiar with the work in macroeconomics of uh, um, Kindleberger and uh, Minsky, particularly everybody knows the Minsky moment in the financial right. crisis. And I personally know him also. We had a whole night discussions in the uh, bus that we were driving, and I knew him uh, from other talks. So these were my major uh, influences, um, uh, but mostly uh, also past economists like, um, I don't know I said, Keynes or uh, classical um, economics or uh, partly also Marx theory or uh, uh, Thrapa theory and reinterpreting uh, Ricardo. So these were some important figures. For those who are interested, are many of your writings available online? Uh, yes. Um, the older um, papers, probably not, but otherwise they are uh, all indicated in my CV that's at the new school. And so they can be picked up if anybody wants to have some specifics. From my previous writings, uh, I can um, I have uh, collected all the papers, the, also the older ones, and I can send them to. Okay, that's a great start. Now, uh, let's move on to the subject at hand. Uh, I feel safe in saying that almost everyone who will eventually view the recording of our conversation would agree with you that climate change has arrived and fossil fuels are driving this change. So let me ask the big question right up front. What are the tools economics offers that can help turn back the clock of climate change? Yes, that's I think an important uh, question. Um, many uh, original contributions to climate economics were using growth theory and uh, the solo growth theory. For example, Nordhaus is uh, basically a solo version of optimal growth theory where he introduces damage to the, econ uh, to the economy coming from CO2 emission and then has to be uh, repaired through some abatement. So these are tools that are coming from growth theory, but growth theory doesn't have much of tools actually uh, available. Most of the theories and growth theory also say, well, the policies are pretty neutral in the long run. You see, they are determined by some trend or total factor productivity. or And so this was not a good starting point to develop some tools of uh, macroeconomic tools of uh, 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 mitigation policy or adaptation policy and climate change. So. I worked a lot with tools that are coming from macroeconomics, so more from the view of the economy on the short and medium run. So there were a lot of tools already developed in earlier times by uh, macroeconomists that could be used for uh, climate uh, issues and climate uh, 
mitigation or uh, adaptation. So um, the standard tools that are coming up there, of course, are uh, carbon pricing, so carbon tax or carbon cap and trade um, policies. Uh, the other standard tools that are particularly used in Europe are the well, regulation and setting standards. Because people are saying, well, the market-oriented uh, part of the profession says, all oh, we always have to work with market incentives. Well, but certain things uh, can also be and should be regulated and um, observed and uh, also should, uh, set standards for standards for admission, emission, for example, for cars. And so this is a, a second important tool that the Europeans and the EU Commission uses a lot. Then the third tool is probably uh, well, uh, the development of new technology because carbon uh, decarbonization of the economy is not alone reached by some uh, conservation of uh, energy, but you have to produce energy in a new way. And so with uh, energy, we produce with solar, with wind, with hydro, uh, water power with hydrogen, with uh, thermal, uh, geothermal uh, power. So these, there are uh, great new inventions necessary on uh, uh, phasing in of these new technology into um, the energy sectors. And um, this is more, uh, an important issue, uh, also the new uh, technology. Another important issue in macroeconomics is, of course, the macroeconomic policy tools, what I mentioned, for example, tax and subsidies. So tax subsidies are given to big oil companies, so why not giving subsidies also to renewable energy and taxing, taxing energy-intensive sectors. So these are... The tax and expenditure, tax and expenditure and uh, tools of uh, fiscal policy, but there's also tools from in macroeconomic for monetary policy. Monetary policy is uh, steering uh, financial flows in certain directions, and why should it be always, uh, whatever people say, market conform or market um, oriented uh, flows of financial flows? Can be also financial flows to renewable energy sector, for example, credit flows and liquidity and so on. So uh, these are um, the uh, important, I think, new tools then that come from macroeconomics more than from growth theory. And so we thought, well, we start basically there now and say, well, we have a lot of experience with these macro tools and that we can use now. You, you mentioned, and, and I think there's a good deal of discussion about the efficacy of cap and trade versus yeah. a direct carbon tax. Yes. From the standpoint of economic efficiency, uh, which do you think is the most uh, appropriate uh, public policy to support? Well, there are both is a method of carbon pricing, so increase the price of uh, your uh, uh, carbon intensive activity. Uh, the one is through trading system, the other one to the tax, to a carbon tax. It, um, that has partly 
uh, institutional uh, reasons why one or the others are used. For example, in Europe, the EU Commission, the EU as a uh, I, um, unit to make policy cannot use taxation policy and subsidies. Hmm. This is the sovereign right of the states. So they can only use uh, cap and trade. That's why it was introduced originally. One shouldn't forget it. It doesn't mean that that's the best method. It has some institutional reasons there. And then the cap and trade is uh, very, very volatile. The prices for cap and trade, very volatile. So they go up and down a lot with business cycles and with the endowment set for the firms. So, uh, and this is also uh, somewhat... Um, uh, a little bit uh, backward uh, arrangement. So uh, first, uh, I encourage you to do some sins, and then you can later buy buy yourself out of it. So I think it's, it's somewhat. Uh, at least it's not so much uh, the tradition of great European macroeconomists. They were thinking that the public has to take more uh, important action through it. A tax, for example, Pigou tax, yeah, and that is more uh, among academics. This is mostly the most popular version there in Europe. Though uh, both have their limitations, uh, we did a lot of studies on the effect of uh, carbon tax for European countries, for example, with some macroeconomic uh, models where you have a regime with no carbon tax, you have a regime with carbon tax, if you want to look at what's the effect on CO2 emission, on employment and output and so, and the results are very, very little. And you cannot raise the carbon tax uh, to a level which is uh, effective so far uh, steering the uh, decarbonization of the economy because there's so much side effects, the carbon tax, like as um, effect on income distribution and uh, uh, certain households will be strongly affected by that. Also, that uh, assumes some uh, a substitution effect that you with a high price of one good, you substitute into a price into another good. Well, but that requires that the other good exists. You see, and the renewable energy has to be promoted first to exist or so. Uh, there, and then the uh, the substitution effect, usually I taught in earlier times, industrial organization, are very, very slow. So if you raise the price of one good, you want to have a higher demand for the other good, substituting over, it's very, very slow in the long run. So that's some limitation. Therefore, the other uh, tools are more... Um, uh, should be more used or also used, I would say. We are arguing you should not drop carbon pricing, but you can't get reach what you want with carbon pricing. Well, you you raise the point of institutional constraints in Europe, but I think that, that certainly applies to the institutional constraints in the international level, of course. Yeah. And in your book, you identify two of the most serious environmental challenges we face as first, the shutting down of the Gulf Stream and also the collapse of the Antarctic ice sheet. Yes. And, and it seems to me logical that addressing 
either or both of those challenges will require close collaboration by all of the governments in the in, in the global community. So um, what are the arguments that are being made? And uh, do you see us moving forward internationally to address these challenges by joint action? Yes. So let me first say uh, you're completely correct with what you call some uh, important tipping points in the development that have been called as tipping points or thresholds where you reach certain thresholds and then you get completely different uh, dynamics. So, so these are all quite complex systems or the, the environmental parts, uh, the uh, eco parts and the economic, very uh, um, uh, complex system. And so you may trigger then some other effects. And this is with the two uh, tipping points you mentioned, they are in fact uh, mostly uh, argued that is the uh, uh, collapse of the Gulf Stream uh, that's heavily discussed also in our handbook of macroeconomics by some experts. Secondly, uh, the um, uh, melting of the uh, ice sheets. Uh, that is, uh, uh, then there are certain uh, other smaller tipping points that one knows, so I can't go through all of them. But uh, one of the major tipping points that has been discussed by uh, climate economists and climate uh, uh, or scientists is the energy problem of the Earth. So that's the work by Hansen. He um, was also at the New School, he gave a talk there and so he uh, was earlier a direct NASA director, was later fired by Bush because of his view. <laughs> so and he maintained that uh, the energy um, is so coming in from the sun is reflected back to space. But the share that is reflected back to space is decreasing over time. In other words, we are absorbing more and more energy. And this produces this tipping point of the, uh, with the energy we are, uh, that we are absorbing here that goes up. That is the basic uh, uh, driver of all the other tipping points. And so uh, that's uh, uh, the main uh, impact. The tipping points are also having a lot of other um, short and medium run effects. So if the tipping points are reached, so you the frequent severity and the frequency of the disasters will rise. Now one knows that the frequency is rising anyway. One sees this quite observable, and that there are data on this. But the severity of the disaster is uh, all seem to be also rising, and so that uh, is um, uh, the effect of the tipping points then. One can lay out what the disaster will be, or coming from the collapse of the Gulf Stream or the ice sheet melting. Uh, but there are also some longer run effects that one will have with these uh, passing the tipping points. That, for example, agricultural production will, uh, has um, tipping points. A certain degree of temperature, your seeds still go up. But uh, going over 30, 31 degree, the seeds don't grow anymore. So you have tipping points in agriculture and productivity there. So it, 
as many other uh, normal effects, also labor productivity and so on. So, uh, but this is a very important point that we might uh, get close to tipping points that are not reversible. Yeah, the uh, the climate experts seem to be coming to a, an agree a general agreement on how much time we have, and the necessity to respond very quickly with the with with uh, global collaboration to address these issues. Yeah. But you know, as I sit here and I look at our own situation in the United States, uh, and just look at our use of fossil fuels. Um, yeah. It will take decades, it seems to me, to replace the 300 million plus gasoline powered automobiles on the road, as well as the millions of trucks that, that carry every sort of good required to feed and clothe and house us. So when we think about transitioning to electric vehicles, although that might be essential, as is the dramatic expansion of our public transit systems that we're not really spending the money on. The infrastructure to replace the automobile, to replace trucks. Where are the economic tools that will get us there to, to dramatically reduce the consumption of fossil fuels and the amount of time that we have left before we have passed the tipping points that you described? Yes, that's very much true. Um, I think what you describe with the auto industry is, of course, true for many sectors of the economy. The whole transport sector, that also includes not automobile and uh, uh, buses and uh, trucks, but also ships, airplanes. Right. And, uh, so uh, then it's uh, important the... Um, resistant or some uh, holding back some uh, 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 change uh, transition there is also in the whole household sector and housing sector with new uh, heating systems and so on. Then that is important electricity production. So uh, that there's new more electricity produced with renewable energy. So uh, then uh, in many areas of uh, manufacturing production, steel production, or also in agriculture. So in other words, on the sectoral level, you have exactly the same problem that you described, that there is uh, some uh, irreversibility, some lock-ins, some difficulties to get out of this, and some also uh, heavy uh, public opinion that isn't going along with your uh, proposal to do the transition and the decarbonization. And Germany experienced that at, at the moment quite a lot. And also, you know, in the US, it's difficult to introduce some uh, carbon tax. Uh, it will not come in the US. That is just uh, uh, no way to go. And so, therefore, uh, you are completely correct. Uh, but the... Um, uh, I think there should be given some, uh, well, um, uh, in some sense, uh, yeah, market incentive on the one side, so be to behave in this direction, but on the other side, some public infrastructure that supports this, for example, public charging stations, what the Biden administration is also planning. So um, they have to be... Uh, quite a, a strong 
but the public uh, support of this uh, uh, decarbonization. And you are completely correct. That can take, we are saying it takes uh, um, many years, the millions of trucks to get them into uh, one with green energy. So, uh, uh, and the, additionally is that, that in the, um, those sectors, you have usually uh, firms, you have particular electricity production or uh, energy production, uh, very big companies there, very big oligopolies there. And it's not so easy for small-scale firms that innovate there with some renewable energy, new ideas, to uh, attain a bigger market share. We have some written some papers on this, where how difficult it is to... Uh, phase in so uh, renewable energy and alternatives with small-scale firms there that are uh, operate and you are completely correct there are some um, very difficult uh, policy issues and uh, uh, probably uh, it takes longer than one thinks think to do yes well it brings up the very important issue of how we're going to pay for this you yes. you reference green finance in your yes. book, and uh, you know many of us have spent a great deal of time trying to analyze the the kinds of reforms that might be necessary in our banking system, in our our financial system, whether or not the Federal Reserve uh, in the United States and central banks need to have more. Or less power and authority. Yeah. What do you, what's your sense of of where we are with with the financial system, uh, public debt, and and how we can pay for the the infrastructure needs that we face even right now today, um, when yeah. you know when we find that particularly in the United States but other countries as well, those who have the ability to pay. And maybe maybe be the maybe are the beneficiaries of intense subsidies already um, have fought against progressive taxation. What yes. is there a solution? Yes, no, and uh, so there are two uh, uh, financial flows, so to speak. So one that is directed by the private sector, so to the private financial industry, and the other one that's directed maybe for the fiscal policy or to central banks, yet also the public. And as to the first one, um, in principle, I mean, the financing just means so uh, through an innovation there and the renewable energy. So you, in principle, you can have crowd finance, self-finance, a credit from a bank, you can have a, issuing your bonds or if in a more advanced stage you will can be able be able to issue equity and uh, in the level on the level of uh, the big institutional investors so basically they have portfolios you can direct uh, or give incentives for portfolios to move into the right direction so the principle there are many tools in the financial sector but only the financial sector can be seen. Um, we have written around a lot of papers there also for, for uh, World Bank and others. Uh, the financial sector uh, can be a, a roadblock for these financing, or, or it can be a bridge. 
So uh, the financial sector is usually very short-sighted. So uh, it works with arbitrage mostly in most uh, sectors of financial markets. And um, what is uh, the financial sector not by, quite capturing is that so on the real side of the economy, you have uh, positive and negative externalities. It's very well known in economic theory, but it hasn't shown up actually in financial, financial thinking. So, um, for example, uh, so, uh, this uh, uh, is concerning the question of well, could it be a bridge to uh, the uh, decarbonization or to uh, uh, transition of the uh, energy sector? Uh, the financial um, assets do not reflect these uh, externalities positive or negative ones. So uh, you would expect, well, you have some equity flow or credit flow or uh, bank uh, loan flow to certain sectors. And they should basically uh, have a lower return because they produce externalities and they should fix the problem in the future. For the problem in the future should be fixed. So, but the financial sector doesn't care about this, <laughs> these externalities, about this long-run effects of the where they're investing, you see. And they also usually don't care much about the other side when the um, uh, renewable energy has a positive effect in the long run for um, decarbonization and for uh, transition of the uh, energy, uh, the financial sector also doesn't uh, care much about this long-run positive effect. So I, I was surprised that finding almost no uh, literature in finance that take care of these two, two effects. But if you want to do the financial use the financial sector properly, you see for um, influencing this, they should reflect. Uh, the bad side of the real activity, the uh, uh, external effect with lower returns, and should give some premium for the uh, higher, uh, uh, more productive, uh, 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 productive uh, investments. And this is, um, is the financial sector starts now seeing that, and some people try to uh, say to the uh, to talk to the financial sector and tell them. That they have to take this into account, and uh, so uh, what we uh, if there is some advantage of the financial sector if they steer the funds towards the uh, renewable energy, for example, you have much less volatility of the asset prices there. If you uh, so, uh, in other words, it would be a good to to tell the financial sector investors. That, themselves or you you gain from this actually when you do this right and so that's uh, maybe maybe helpful and so the, you can gain because the volatility is lower in terms of uh, for bonds and for um, the equity the volatility is much lower this is called the sharp ratio if you measure the sharp ratio in the financial sector for green or brown assets they are quite different and uh, Let's this take is, your analysis a little bit back, and and I'd like you to comment on on what has been done, public policy wise, with uh, since the two thousand and eight crash, 
most analysts attribute a, a lot of the damage that was done to the economy uh, as a result of the the financial instruments that were that were introduced in the in the late 1990s and and ended up in the subprime mortgage crisis and in the the collapse of the collateralized mortgage obligations and all of the the you know sophisticated debt instruments do you think we have sufficiently learned the lesson from the from that experience and you know are in a position to manage the kind of uh, debt levels that exist now uh, which seem to be extraordinarily high in in every area of the the private economy as well as the public economy, given the, the public debt of the United States government, uh, the, the yeah. accumulated mortgage debt, both commercial and residential, credit card debt, automobile loan debt. Um, yes. I, I, you, know, you are completely correct on this. There's, there's a, there was some lesson in the short term learned through the new financial regulation that occurred in the Congress. Dodd Frank, uh, you're speaking of. Yes, Dodd Frank regulation. But many of those um, practices are slowly arising again and were not really monitored or sanctions or observed or so. And they are also put aside under the uh, Trump administration and slowly we are discovering they are coming up again. So uh, this is one uh, thing that uh, would be, uh, well, this is probably uh, just the direction of very uh, well, uh, more uh, uh, finance sector as a roadblock actually for uh, financing uh, renewable uh, uh, energy transformation. Um, but um, on the debt issue, um, that is true with the uh, low interest rate at the uh, unconventional monetary policy and QE. You had uh, over years at the low, very low in zero interest rate, you had very high liquidity in the uh, economy with a lot of speculative uh, actions there, like. Uh, uh, not only hedge funds, but also uh, cryptocurrencies. And you have the recent cases of collapsing, you have some bank collapsing now in California. So this huge uh, um, blow up of uh, liquidity and then of course, the cheap borrowing, uh, you use the liquidity to invest into, uh, into cryptocurrencies, that doesn't make much sense. So. But this is, uh, blow, is blowing up this, um, uh, uh, the debt in the private sector, but uh, it's probably not so much in the household sector itself, but it's also in the corporate sector. And there are lots of warnings that uh, the bonds, a uh, uh, share of, so the share of, um, of um, uh, bonds of, uh, that may go insolvent or bankrupt now, have incredibly increased. So in the corporate sector, the big explosion was occurring with uh, junk bonds and those things. So uh, to the state, um, the sovereign, I'm a little bit along, thinking along the lines of Blanchard. He doesn't think that the US will have uh, 
as state, a sovereign state, a huge debt problem. Uh, his main measure is there that the growth rate was always greater than the interest rate payments, and now it's a little bit reversed for the new situation there. But uh, the uh, debt of the U.S. economy has been always still uh, uh, stable, and the U.S. dollar will still be the world-leading uh, currency for a while without uh, big damages due to debt. Krugman is has, having this view, and Longchamp, and I wrote also paper of this estimating the debt sustainability. But where the sovereign debt becomes important, that's in uh, developing economies and low and middle income countries. There it becomes very important because it has been uh, increasing a lot and cannot be used for or is, can rarely be used for uh, the transition to a green economy. That's, that's an important area. Does that mean that the policy of the World Bank and its uh, its willingness to uh, extend credit to those countries that are most at risk but don't have the domestic capacity to raise the revenue for the new infrastructure, does the World Bank have, in your view, an increasing responsibility and obligation you know, to well, um, I think the World Bank has basically some kind of investment bank on the side that is guiding the uh, credit flows there and borrowing to some developing economies. I think they're taking pretty uh, good uh, care of this. The uh, World Bank and also the IMF are more on the seat, well on the side now to say we need some debt reform some debt relief of uh, uh, the important uh, well, emerging market countries and low and middle income countries. That's uh, their line on the, uh, to what extent that will be realized. That's a, <laughs> that's a good question. But I also do some work for the World Bank. I've written papers for them and fiscal, it was a fiscal policy for transition now to a low carbon economy was a paper and we got into exactly this problem that uh, the uh, uh, sovereign uh, uh, the debt in uh, emerging market countries is uh, uh, can hardly be used for the increase of the debt for the transition they need other methods uh, now there are discussions now in recent uh, World conferences on climate change since uh, Copenhagen, namely to set up uh, funds for low and middle income countries to uh, finance the mitigation, but also adaptation into big uh, disaster re uh, uh, recovering or protecting and having early warning systems with respect to the big disasters that are possibly coming there. So this is a fund that partly will be um, given as loans, but partly also as grants. And Jeffrey Sachs has worked this out that uh, it should be uh, to a great extent given as grants in this 100 billion funds. And now in the meantime, I think it's increased to 130, 150 billion. It should be given as grants and not as loans. As loans would produce again the problem of uh, the liabilities and the rise of debt. So there are other financing mechanisms now 
uh, thought about by the um, the experts there. And I think the World Bank is pretty much on uh, 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 on this side now. Well, that would require that individual members of the World Bank would have to increase their allocations. So each country uh, would then have to domestically find the find the uh, the the revenue to contribute to the World Bank's fund, if, even to make these grants. So it seems like we're it's like a a, a catch twenty two. We're back to the same question domestically. The resistance to raising marginal tax rates in the United States, both on the corporate sector and on individuals, leads us with a growing public debt. Rising interest rates does mean that that as each one of the treasury treasuries matures, as each bond matures, it's going to be refunded at a higher rate of interest, which means that the government then has to has to raise revenue to service that debt. It seems to me to be an overwhelming uh, circle of problems. And yes. you know, perhaps, yeah, I don't know if you've thought a lot about the yes, modern monetary theorists, you know, like Stephanie Kelton have put forward on how to deal with this. But um, Stephanie was one of our students at the New School. She was also in my classes in earlier times. So I know her pretty well. So I think. Uh, there, um, there are certain well situations. Let's say it's called the bad debt equilibrium and the good debt equilibrium. And I think the U.S. is still close to a good debt equilibrium. Where uh, so all puts it the other way, or bad debt equilibrium is this one where uh, there are is high debt, there is a rising um, uh, risk premium, there are rising uh, uh, yields to be paid the more uh, that's expected by the investor, but the more uh, the uh, government takes this on, the higher will be the debt. So there's a spiral between debt and risk premium, and this is called a debt equilibrium. And this is, leads to capital flight and this uh, financial um, uh, reactions and uh, uh, banking crashes and all those things. So, uh, but US, I don't think has reached this point already. Uh, they um, uh, you still have uh, you have sectors of state expenditure which are expend more than the gross rates. So uh, you uh, still uh, you have a high interest rate, but this feedback effect for bad rising debt and rising uh, premium to be paid on this, uh, I think this has not occurred. The, the dollar is still so strong internationally the leading currency and the world currency everybody runs into the dollar if there's some trouble anywhere so uh, i think this is not a uh, point is not reached true for the us but for a lot, a lot of other countries this point can be reached easily that's right and one has to look at it a little bit closer so to speak what is uh, the situation there can it be uh, recovered through, uh, for example, uh, some uh, financial reform, can it be recovered through uh, additional uh, IMF loans, can it be recovered through higher growth rates. Or, uh, so uh, there is, um, uh, I think, a difference across countries there, what the situation is. And I'm not so... Uh, uh, 
leaning towards the view the U.S. has reached already this tipping point to become a bad debt uh, equilibrium now with this feedback effect. That's not uh, reached yet. I think it's a little bit too much panic. <laughs> the debt is too uh, well under 10, 113% debt to GDP ratio. Italy, uh, Japan has 250% <laughs> and Italy has 130 and uh, 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 Greece has 180%. So it's uh, not uh, I think immediately debt crisis they are visible. It reminds okay. me of, of what, you know, uh, Keynes achieved with Bretton Woods, and that was getting, you know, the major uh, economic powers of the world at the time to agree to basically set aside domestic priorities in order to achieve a level of international balance in the, in the financial sector and the, with, you know, the monetary systems. So, you know, Bretton Woods fell apart. and now countries like China and Russia and you know, the euro attempted to establish its own monetary system with limited successes, too, because it didn't extend to the budgetary and tax systems within those sovereign countries. If you were invited to testify before a United Nations committee, oh. <laughs> all of the essential elements of global cooperation necessary to halt climate change, what would your specific recommendations be based on, you know, the work that you've done, your research? Yeah, so the reform on the world monetary system and financial system, this is, a, a, is an important discussion, but I'm, I'm doing this a little bit in my financial, um, international finance class, so there is a lot of discussion on this. I can maybe um, abstain from this discussion a little bit, whether or not the... Uh, the the, the uh, end of the Bretton Woods system has brought some uh, big turbulence with uh, free capital flows and with uh, uh, booms and busts in countries with uh, financial and other booms and busts, and it's less uh, manageable. Uh, though uh, that's 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 true. Um, but on the uh, advice of the UN, well, I'm not an international. Uh, policymaker and the policy, uh, it's a difficult task nowadays with all these different blocks, you know, that you have on the globe, uh, it's a different task. But um, I think there are two things. Um, there is a bad, uh, though, uh, let's say, uh, the, the problem of coalition formation somewhat. The public coalition formation um, is for these uh, big international tasks among them climate change or um, reform of the currency system. The coalition formation is very difficult at the moment. And um, the earlier idea was for Paris and later that one has the big well, uh, countries and blocks on the board, US, uh, Europe, uh, China, uh, India, then you will get easily also the small countries on board 
they will join. That was the whole theory of a coalition formation. And I think this has fallen apart now. Uh, this, uh, this was a theory of Geoffrey Hill from Columbia University about the coalition formation. Now one should try to do this at the UN level there and for those conferences there. Um, one of the bigger issues is now we experience more and more now the uh, lot of uh, uh, middle, low uh, income countries are somewhat the victim of the climate change in terms of, but well, they have not caused much of the CO2 emissions in the last 150 years, but they are affected a lot. You just saw the last one in Libya, where you have basically multiple vulnerabilities coming up there. Yeah, so uh, from extreme weather events to a bad infrastructure with uh, dams that doesn't work, do not work with, uh, multiple vulnerabilities that are there, and they ask for a fair transition, a better uh, 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 transfer of funds and help from the advanced countries in terms of finance and technology and trade to help them. And there is their big demands in the last uh, conferences, always these voices of the those emerging market countries. Then you have, of course, nowadays, as you see, the oil-rich countries. The uh, oil-rich countries have a different policy there. So for uh, decarbonization, and they try to step in now in the, into the green development with it. And, uh, but they have also their own agenda there. And uh, uh, I worked also with a lot of Russians on uh, climate change issues and uh, climate uh, in the YASA, there are lots of uh, Russian ac academics, mathematicians, and dynamic system theorists. And so they did this in uh, for uh, as an interesting topic in Russia. Uh, but um, there is no no big uh, big sentiment for uh, climate change issues in Russia. So uh, there's not much uh, uh, to be gained there. But in China, there is much more now. That's true. But so uh, finding the coalition now to do this is a difficult, difficult thing now to do in, in uh, at the UN. But some help of the um, low-income countries is definitely necessary to have them on board for climate agreements, and uh, probably also uh, well, China uh, is an important figure there. India now nowadays also more and more, so. Uh, this is one of the problems, the coalition formation there. And, uh, if one can improve this, that would be, um, in the UN, that would be a, a, a good. Uh, so um, I think that, uh, I'm, but I'm not a, it's uh, uh, um, called now, uh, uh, no, um, research and academic diplomacy, so to speak. It's caught in circles now. We have to get, so, uh, see which coalition formation can you get there. Yeah. So, but I'm not an expert on this. I actually very good papers on one this. Does, one does not to have, need to have expertise to see that the, the vast migration of people from places around the globe that are being both dramatically affected by civil unrest 
um, economic hardship, political uh, upheaval, as well as climate change, all coming together at the same time. The Russian the Russian government doesn't have to worry because no one is migrating to Russia. They're not, you know, coming out of distressed places and moving to Russia. I don't. I suspect that that's at least not now. Before, yes. yes. <laughs> no, maybe maybe if Siberia warms up uh, from climate change, people will move into Siberia. But yeah. but we're dealing with this massive movement of people. It has political consequences, but it also has enormous uh, consequences on domestic economies and the ability to absorb this population to assimilate these people. Does macroeconomics have any? solutions or 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 policy insights that will would ameliorate or mitigate the impact yes this is i think an important uh, further issue of uh, macroeconomics nowadays and you are completely correct that is also intention of our book to say well if you drive the uh, decarbonization or transition in the um, um, uh, the energy sector there are so many uh, worries at the same time for macroeconomists, you know, energy independence, inflation rate, unemployment, growth, uh, uh, income distribution, uh, um, globalization, and value chain uh, problems, and uh, refugee problems. There are so many other worries that you have to think about what's the priority, what is the uh, the uh, combination of worries that you uh, think are the, the most important ones, and then you pursue this. And that can be only done in terms of macroeconomics. It cannot be in long-run growth theory. Long-run growth theory, we are all fine. So, you see, that's exactly the motivation of our book. So you put it at the important point. You put an important point up here. Now, the uh, I think, though, the... Uh, 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 refugee problem, yes, has, has many causes now. Uh, social upheaval against uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, socioeconomic difference across countries in the job chances or jobs that you can have, climate disasters in certain regions and heat waves and uh, uh, droughts and agricultural decline. So um, you have many um, uh, 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 reasons there of these uh, refugee streams nowadays. But one of the things is, I think, too, in, uh, for example, in Europe, it's uh, a little bit uh, um, the discussion, uh, so just uh, 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 controlling the borders there. But these uh, refugees often come with incredible skills already. They are engineers, they are technicians, they have uh, a good education, they have um, uh, university uh, study finished. And so they are screaming in Europe all over the place about uh, scarcity of uh, people for the new job, for a climate change job. And you need in the transformation, not only new capital and machine and uh, technology, you need also different human capital in the direction of uh, now decarbonization of the economies or the uh, uh, energy transformations. You need engineers there. You need uh, 
uh, technicians there. You need well, there's a lot a lack of technicians. They can't uh, put in warming uh, the uh, uh, different uh, heating system in households. Not for a year or two. You don't get any uh, professional to do this because <laughs> the people are not there. At the same time, there are a huge number of refugees sitting in some camps and are not integrated there in the job. Uh, markets there. Yeah. You are completely correct. There is a great potential, I think, uh, for uh, also refugees that uh, can uh, uh, help to, uh, on the human capital side, to produce a better success there. Yes. Well, it's it's a very complex issue, and uh, we've only touched, scratched the surface of that particular issue. Um, you know, there's there's so much more to talk about in terms of how how these uh, people sure. can be assimilated. You know, one of the major problems that we have now with people coming into the United States from the southern border, of course, is where to house them. Yes. You know, we have a housing shortage in the United States. The uh, National Low Income Housing Coalition estimates that we have a shortfall of some seven million affordable housing units in this country now. And with new people coming in from other countries, that problem is only exacerbated. Yes, I, you see it also in New York and New Jersey. <laughs> well, we're we're slowly coming to the end of our of our time for this this episode, but I I can't not talk a little bit about economics and uh, the economics, the political economy that the Henry George School has taught over the over the many decades. I mean, I, I was initially a student of the Henry George School um, and before I went to graduate school and, and earned my master's degree. And in recent years, of course, particularly because of the failure of economists to forecast the, the crisis of 2008, uh, economists and economics uh, has been criticized for failing to explain how the world really works. And those of us who studied the political economy as written by Henry George argue that the reasons the failure to treat nature, that is land, as a distinct factor of production with character, characteristics that are distinct from those of tangible capital, meaning capital goods, and from labor. So I wonder, you know, to what extent this thinking has impacted you in terms of do you see nature as a distinct factor of production from uh, what in modern economics is normally thought of as, a, as simply another form of capital? Yes, I think, yeah, we have, a, well, there's also currently a lot of discussions at the Henry George School there, and uh, well, one of the big points so, of Henry George was that well, land is uh, an income from land, and rent is basically unearned income. Yes. And I think he is completely correct. It is the old theory already of the 19th century. You find similar things in Adam Smith and Ricardo and Marx in the 19th century thinking, because uh, if you have a scarcity there, you just have uh, land there selling with for in. Uh, or agglomerate uh, cities or uh, buildings or other things. That is, uh, I think, uh, important, um, uh, very important point is unearned income. You have not contributed anything with your sitting on this income to the society in some way. 
all the marginal productivity theory of neoclassical doesn't apply there. You don't contribute anything to the when uh, you get some returns. You get a return with contributing nothing, right? So I think if you think about this, this is a, a, a important proposition that um, Henry George uh, laid out there. It was all this life of, of 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 thinking. But I think now we have one other component now there. That's the fact that you below the uh, land, you have discovered in the industrialization now important mineral, oil, uh, and um, very uh, non-renewable uh, non energy or whatever. It's on your land. In other words, you have additional through that discovery what's below the earth, below the soil, unearned income also in a lot of countries. You see, as though you should apply this the same way to the resources that are below your earth. You may see all the, may have seen the film of, uh, the uh, James Dean film in Texas where he goes along very proud on his pro new property that he has at land, measures this with his feet. And uh, he's not so much proud about the land, but about the discovered oil <laughs> below the land. <laughs> so you see, that I think that's a dimension that we should think about, that there are all these uh, well, cheap resources that as an asset of the nature transforms this into income, and this is all unearned income. Yes. Yeah, so that's, I think, some uh, kind of extension that we should think. And the second point is, as a piece of land, as a piece of nature, of an asset of nature, it's important that this is conserved for the next generation, because that's uh, limited in size, limited in nature, limited in quality. And this is an asset of nature, and we cannot extract and uh, completely destroy it now. That needs to be uh, some inter generational view, the next generations need this as well in the ecosystem and so on. So there are many important aspects of this. It raises the sense of urgency of, of what your research has focused on. It raises the sense of urgency that our political leaders need to consider and take action uh, before it's too late, before as, as we pass the tipping points that you've identified in our conversation. Yes. <laughs> I I um you know I wish that there was some level of public sympathy for for Henry George's basic argument to move toward uh comprehensive tax reform and and begin to tax rents uh at a very very high level uh close to 100% of the potential uh, rental value of whatever the location might be, whether it's urban, rural, resource-laden, et cetera. But I don't see that happening anytime soon, certainly not soon enough to deal with the problems that we've been discussing. But I have wondered about the potential, at least in the United States, for some sort of reform of our individual income tax and of our uh, business profits tax structure that would capture unearned rents through taxation, through progressive uh, income, tax rates on income. For example, um, 
Why should we continue to distinguish gains on the sale of financial instruments from ordinary income? Why not simply uh, bring all income together, exempt some amount that would be equivalent to what perhaps is the median uh, individual income in the country, eliminate all the other exemptions and deductions, and then impose an increasing rate of taxation on higher ranges of income. At the higher levels of income, we're going to capture a lot of unearned incomes uh, yeah. and no longer give you know the uh, speculation speculation the benefit of subsidy. That, that seems to me to be the one possible approach to tax reform that has a political constituency. Yes, I agree with you. There is some other uh, proposal that's on the table we have now done. I think it's the Henry George School paper also, also in the Social Science Research Network. There's a paper on taxing carbon-intensive wells. You know, uh, that has uh, several advantages. Uh, get another source of taxation to avoid your sovereign debt problem. <laughs> that is feels, I think, a wealth tax is in the air. A lot of people thinking we have gotten such a, a big uh, uh, well, inequality in wealth and income distribution. We have to tax that uh, wealth. But there is a third point that uh, the old tax principle since the 19th century was that um, the uh, those uh, people who have enjoy more public goods should pay more because they enjoy the use more of these public goods. We can just reverse this and saying say those people who produce more public bads yeah. produce more environmental damages, produce more CO2 emissions produce CO2 emission with their wealth, they should be paying, they should pay a higher tax. We just reverse this. The proportionality principle still holds, you see. And we have a paper on this, and we're proposing this new tax on uh, carbon-intensive wealth. So uh, we hope it goes through the public. The bit was in some law school now discussed about uh, new tax procedures. That could be another way to go the um, direction of a more fair uh, taxation principle than we have now. Yeah. Otherwise, I agree with you, your <laughs> suggestion. <laughs> but this is the one that is still in the air a little bit, but it could be solving three problems at the same time. <laughs> Yes. Well, uh, I think all of us uh, who are involved with the Henry George School hope that uh, the book that you have put together will find a, a, an audience. Yes, yeah, the book. Yes. <laughs> will generate a lot of discussion among yes. policymakers and maybe lead to some wise choices about the future and our direction of macroeconomic policy. So I thank you so much for taking the time out to join me in this conversation for Smart Talk. And uh, perhaps we should think about coming back together for um, a sort of an update in, in a next year to see how uh, some, of, some of the dynamics are going on right now in the world, whether they move forward, whether the externalities are positive, or that the negative externalities overwhelm us.
Very good. They're very good idea. And I want to thank you, Ed, for this initiative to organize this uh, session in this uh, streaming. Though uh, it's uh, uh, raises new uh, issues and maybe new policy directions. That that's finally the interest of I mean, our political economy work to bring these important issues to the policy work and say, well, here's something new. That's what you have to do. Yeah. Thank you very much for. Uh, organizing this we, we, and, both, um, we both have to thank Ibrahima uh, and andrada oh yes of course yes together and giving us an opportunity to have this conversation and to share it with uh, all the people who are eventually going to come and view, view it okay so yes so thanking the old henry george school and uh, so have a good term now well, we can meet next year again to see what is realized and what looks dark <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share with a friend. It goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.